0: meeting your your brother yeah when i was in miami yeah,
1: yeah and yeah. we
0: were in the we were in the cab and it was me you i think sahel your brother and we were heading to safe Adin's dinner
1: yeah That's and that so and so the so driver
0: sad. was just like uh he had some opposing view to bitcoin forgot right. what or no it wasn't bitcoin it was like uh cap maybe our young because we are a younger generation, our, uh, perspective with, was it capitalism? I can't remember our conversation and you and your brother, anyways, you and your brother, we got to the dinner and, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, someone's peeking their head in here, but, uh, you guys stuck around and, um, we're talking to the cab driver for like an extra 10 minutes.
1: Yeah. That sounds right. And I, I remember this like a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think you were just trying to relay your perspective of, and you, the two of you and him were disagreeing on some, um, I think socioeconomic topic. And I just thought it was hilarious because we were waiting in line for safety Dean's dinner and I could still see you guys like talking to the cab driver.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a proselytizing streak that my brother and I have where we, yeah, like always want to, we, we talk about it, uh, with my dad a little bit that we're like constantly trying to achieve mind meld with him. There's mm. like this, I think we've given up, but definitely I like ideas. My brother likes ideas. He has this sort of like trolly playful air about him and we like to, mm. uh, definitely like to engage with people about it. And it's like taxi conversations with, with people who are driving you around for like a short period of time are this like fun compressed yeah uh exchange i really like it but yeah i remember that that was fun
0: yeah he he seems like a your brother just seems like a funny dude playful just playful at heart yeah Um, yeah yeah. for sure well i'm excited to have you on man it's uh as i was discussing before uh we hopped on the mic just talking to a friend a bitcoiner friend at work yesterday and he was saying how, you know, it's been since episode six, since you've had anybody on the podcast and talked about Bitcoin and this conversation could lead to Bitcoin, but it may not, you know, it could go anywhere.
1: Um, Tom would be disappointed. Tom, yeah, Tom,
0: shout out to Tom, uh, he was on the episode or the podcast episode two and we talked about the history of money and his video that he, uh, created the fundamentals of Bitcoin and, um, just money. And yeah, so it's been a while. It's been a minute. I've had a lot of Squatch members on, uh, maybe like health and fitness um, guests on. And recently, at least on my Instagram, I posted, I, was like, I, I said to myself, I'd like to reintroduce and get Bitcoin back into the, the Swing Up um, the podcast and no better way to have you on because I consider you a friend, but it's really cool to have you uh as a friend and a colleague and also a member at Squatch, it's a cool little mix. And we have some awesome conversations with the people here. And we, um, you know, uh, per the, uh, ritual, it's like we run into people in the sauna and have great conversations about whatever, you know, it could be like, this one was so different than any other I've had. It was like HR and compliance and regulatory and the human, our human nature is so Like, it's just contradicting to the way that you have to communicate in with someone in a work environment, in a business environment. And, um, so anyways, um, I wanted to get to, you know, get to know you better, um, via just having you tell your story wherever you want to begin. I know that, um, you went to Harvard and you studied English, but then that's obviously changed. Um, yeah. So wherever you want to begin and just kind of, we can, you know, it can swing in different ways, but, um, would love to hear about your background and and what led you to Austin eventually.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's such a pleasure to be here. This is really fun yeah. for me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where I'd, where I'd start with my story, but, um, I'm from Washington, DC. Uh, I went to Harvard. I was a English major, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for a, a large portion of my life was very focused on, um, yeah, on, on literature and on art and had sort of a, a shift, I'd say, in the sort of like latter half of my life after graduating college, if that's, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's kind of frightening and strange, mm-hmm. um, where I, I've become increasingly interested in, uh, like technology and politics and economics and, and broader systems, um, and I, I think that that turn started a little bit in college as I, um, as an English major, I, I felt. I, I mean, I have a, a lot of criticisms of of education uh, as it, as it exists, and and one of them when, when I was first, uh, first orienting towards liberal arts education and 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 literature, it was because these books seemed like these treasure troves of of valuable information. They they really spoke to how we should live. And increasingly, as I spent time in that, in that educational space, I felt like that wasn't the way we were approaching great mm. works. You'd read a book um, that, that could potentially tell you a lot about how to live a moral life or a good life or, or what the human experience is. Um, but your mandate as a student was, A, to read it along with, you know, 10 other books very quickly in a very short period of time, mm. and then, B, to approach it for something novel, which was almost inherently, after a certain point, something very narrow and specific. So you'd read, um, I remember... Reading uh Thomas Mann Buddenbrooks, which is a fascinating book, and uh writing, you know, a ten page paper about the the theme of teeth in Buddenbrooks. Like, you know, how how like uh yeah, how teeth, how uh dental pain, et cetera, like tied into these underlying yeah. themes. And you know, you can do it. It's a it's a rich book. The author probably thought about uh motifs. Um, but you're really just you're focusing a microscope on some corner of this experience that is not central, unless you do a really excellent job and and you picked your, your obscure point expertly mm-hmm. is not central to, to what the book is about really. It's sort of, um, tangential. And I, I think I got the impression and, and from people I talked to that as you get higher up in, in these areas of academia, the pressure for novelty is sort of like raise your hand in the, in the global discourse that is discussion of Thomas Mann's writing, let's say, or, um, you know, writing about Shakespeare or sonnets or something like that. The pressure is constantly towards a degree of novelty that removes you from like the, the core meaning mm-hmm. of the work. And, uh, I, I found that, uh, sort of increasingly distasteful or at least not what I wanted to do. And then also, uh, felt that, um, uh, oh, geez, what was I gonna, felt that there's a degree of subjectivity to that work that also was frustrating that mm-hmm. you, um, I mean, th- I, I say this not as a person who's like gone into grad a grad program. I, I I wasn't like an expert in English, but this was the the direction that it felt like things were moving. Um, is that you know I, I also studied film and, and did a fair amount of uh, writing in in that space, and eventually you reach a point where you realize you could have made the exact same like the opposite argument from the argument that you made, and it would have been equally valid mm. in a context. And I I started to find that very unsettling, and so I I, I sought things that were more. Um, there's a theory objective, it, I think there's yeah. a print,
0: sorry to interrupt, but there's like a principle that I recently, I follow a uh, Gerwinder on Substack and he has all these, every so often he, um, introduces principles or mental models. And one was how, as a human being, you can rationalize anything. So be mm-hmm. careful of like, you can rationalize something that's completely idiotic. And that came, like, came to mind once you brought the fact that it's kind of unsettling to, Realize that someone can maybe dupe themselves in regards to like a yeah. debating environment or or learning environment
1: yeah i mean it's it's scary that you can rationalize anything, but you can't rationalize anything i mean that's one of the beauties of engineering. It's like you cannot rationalize a false theory of aerodynamics mm. and have it work. You try to fly that plane and it like drops like a stone right. uh there there is an actual reality out there, but there's some debate about that, and um you know you when you're dealing with the real world, you have to conform to it and, and keep close to reality. Mm -hmm. And I, I started after a period of time to find that sort of like a very appealing direction to go down. That wasn't direct after, after I graduated, I spent some time abroad to do, Mm -hmm. um, to continue the story. Um, I, I lived in China for about a year, uh, worked in sort of a college counseling education space that was very strange and fun and interesting and, and morally compromising. Why was, (laughs) why was it strange morally? Uh, well, so the college counseling in, uh, you know, I'm speaking, this is like 12 years in the past, 10 years in the past, something like okay. that, but, um, at the time, and I think it's probably not too dissimilar, um, my, my understanding of the, of the Chinese educational process was it's, uh, very strict and meritocratic. And and basically if you, uh, did very well in a, in a excellent public high school, you'd get into an excellent public college. And if you did very well in this excellent public college, you go into an excellent public, uh, Grad program and then eventually rise into the ranks of bureaucracy and, mm. and do well for yourself in life. And if at any point along that that process you didn't do so well, sort of like taking the GMAT or something, your your whole spectrum of options is somewhat clipped, unless you're from a reasonably wealthy family or family with means. In which case, many families would sort of reorient their child. And this is in a in a single uh, what was one child policy environment. Mm where uh, often a child is the focal point of not just their two parents, but like four additional grandparents. There's a lot of pressure, and they will, uh, if they have money, will sort of reorient their child towards the Western or English-speaking mm-hmm. education environment and try to get their kid into like a name-brand school in the U.S. And so uh, they'd send them to a program such as my own, which was basically like a series of college counseling institutions attached to English-speaking educational like schools across China Mm -hmm. that would help those kids uh, apply to college, write their essays, get their teacher recommendations, et cetera. And that industry ranged from like reasonably morally upstanding, which was my company, in which case, you know, I would be asked to rewrite someone's essay or like help them edit it, but like help them edit it maybe 10 times, 15 times until Mm -hmm. it was basically my essay and I was applying (laughs) to school. Um, uh, and some other places would literally write students' essays for them, fake teacher recommendations, fake their transcripts, send someone to take the TOEFL for them. And it was just this vast morally gray space uh, that American colleges were aware of but put up with because um, there are very few schools in the U.S. that got that give need-blind financial aid to uh, foreign students. So basically, these students were a guaranteed source of income, unlike, say, in-state students or— um, you know, other students who accepted financial aid in, in the U.S. It's mm. it's basically, I think, like five schools in the U.S. give need-blind financial aid to foreign uh, students. It's like, the you know, Princeton, Yale, et cetera. Yeah. And um, as a consequence, these kids are like guaranteed cash cows. Also because many of them, if if their transcripts, et cetera, were, were significantly faked, they wouldn't speak good English and they'd have to go into remedial programs the second they landed in the U.S., which are highly costly. Mm. And so there was this weird trade-off Um, exchange between American colleges that sort of knew they were getting students that were often faked or they weren't putting in the effort to sort through them, but were willing to do so because it was one of their chief sources of income. Mm. And on the other hand, uh, these families in China that knew they were sending their kids to schools where they might feel socially isolated, not know the language, be in a vastly different culture, but they were getting the sort of like name brand recognition that was important when they returned to China. So it was the strange symbiotic relationship that for me felt very strange also because as a, as a component of this system, uh, I was sort of the first layer of, uh, admissions gatekeeping. Like if I worked with a student and I really liked them and I thought they were great, I would just do a better job with them. Mm. Their, their essay would be better. Uh, or I would like give them better advice. Uh, some of that, uh, you know, somewhat purposefully, but I think it just happened naturally over time. You're working with students and, um, you know, I, I trust my own judgment, but that's a very strange position to be in. And the whole thing was weird. Yeah. And that's
0: something that comes to mind, um, based off of your relationship with that student. I mean, it's, it's natural to be more incentivized internally to, to, um, help someone that you gravitate towards more you know just their personality and who they are and their uh their character and so if there's a student that's just being a, a royal pain in the ass and yeah. you're trying your hardest it's still your the f- the fabric of your mind is still it's difficult to to you know more optimally help them with their process of creating the essay or whatever they're doing yeah. so i mean i yeah your uh the moral hazard i, I can totally see why you're thinking in that way because you're, you're putting pressure on yourself to try to no matter what um, put in as much effort as possible with every single student that comes by but it might be just more naturally easier for certain students.
1: For sure. Yeah. 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 It was, um, I had individual people in mind as you were mentioning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're like, yeah. you know, two students who I thought were really, three maybe who I thought were really excellent. Um, one who was the annoying kid <laughs> um, you know, and then all sorts of in-betweens, but yeah, yeah. it was a strange, fascinating experience. China is an incredibly fun place to be when mm. you're like 22. I was living in Shanghai mostly.
0: Oh really? Yeah. Um, um, I've never been, well, actually I touched down in China on my way to Thailand and I'm cool. trying to remember where it was, Gengzao, China. Um, anyways, uh, what made it so fun just as a, as an American or is it?
1: Uh, yeah, it felt like a playground. There's a um there was a term I don't know if it's still used, so so Lao Wai, which is like basically foreigner. And then people would talk about the La Wai drunk tank, which is which is basically in the major cities of China. If you like if you get really drunk and you're this never happened to me, guys, I'm I'm upstanding. Okay. Uh but if you get really drunk or you're a mess in the sort of way you'd be like you're you'd be in trouble and if you were like a Chinese person you might get in serious trouble. Uh there was the famed, I don't know if this was a literal place. I think, I think it was, you'd be thrown in the Wai drunk tank, which is they just like put you in a nice padded cell, you chill out overnight and then they let you go. There's no, there are no serious consequences for behavior. Mm-hmm. In, in China, or sorry, in Shanghai, There's a an expat community when I was there because the city was like, you know, 20 million people. There's an expat community that was as large as the population of San Francisco, pretty much. Mm. Uh, and it, they tend to live in a pretty small area called the French concession, which is gorgeous. And basically, uh, you can just go out and drink all the time. Um, everything's cheap. Everything's sort of like bustling and crazy and you just have a lot of fun And there and there are very few consequences. And, uh, also you're a foreigner in this like distinct and irrevocable way where, um, you know, people really treat you very differently as a white person in China. It's both good and bad, but it was very funny. People would like come up to me and just, I had a beard at the time too, uh, which it's its basically been like 12 years ago. And now mm-hmm. um, there was a very long beard that my mom hated in the interim, but for the <laughs> most part, I haven't had a beard. Um, the people would come up and rub my beard just like without asking. <laughs> without asking. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, which was, which was funny. Um, and, and you're given a lot of leeway. Like I, I spoke pretty, uh, pretty crappy Mandarin. You know, I could say like, hi and bye and thank you and order bus tickets, but not really have a conversation. I traveled with uh, my boss at the time, who's Korean, Japanese American and spoke pretty good Mandarin, but looked Asian. And so, uh, when we'd travel, uh, you know, I'd say like ni hao and people would like basically clap and she'd say something really nice and they would literally tell her you need to speak better. And there's this very funny, (laughs) uh, unfair, bizarre dynamic to it. Um, at the same time on the, on the flip side, you, you were like never, ever, ever going to be Chinese. So I had a, I had a good friend there who, uh, was uh, to my ears, which are probably wrong, like functionally fluent. He's like a a white Jewish kid from Baltimore who spent a bunch of time there and and spoke incredible Mandarin. You could, he could switch accents. He was, he was very good at it. He lived there for a while. And he just um, his experience was he he was never local he was never part of the community it's you know countries differ in this regard and uh, he later moved to India where he he didn't you know he spoke English but he didn't speak I guess like Hindi or Urdu and uh, immediately felt like a much more integrated part of that society mm. um, it's tough in China but you're always the sort of outsider in this fun mm-hmm. interesting way cool maybe maybe sometimes not fun but yeah. I,
0: I enjoyed it yeah okay and so after that time in in China, um, did you go to the Bay area, San Francisco or?
1: Yeah, I I was planning on maybe going to New York or something. I'm I'm from DC, right? So Mm -hmm. I was like oriented towards the East coast, but my brother lived in San Francisco and I went to visit him and I slept on his couch for a week and then it extended to basically a year and a half on his couch. Okay. Uh, uh, he's, he's more extroverted than I am. And so he didn't like, he likes having people around and, uh, all the time. And I like, you know, would, would try to grow up and leave for a period of time. But, yeah. you know, we, we sort of stuck together and, and nice. I, I got there and I got into tech slowly in this sort of like classic, I just tripped into it. I, I took the LSAT. What year, it was was,
0: what year was this? Sorry to interrupt.
1: 20, 2011, 20, 2012. Okay. I graduated school in 2011. This is a
0: drastic difference of the quality of living, I, I think. In Shanghai and. Well, I'm talking about San Francisco.
1: Yeah, I think In comparison to
0: today, it seems like. The Bay Area in San Francisco was praised, one, for being Silicon Valley, and it was erupting around that time, I believe, 2010, 2011, um, or maybe before. Uh, and then now it's, it's, not, it's declining ever since COVID. Yeah. But you, uh, might, you might know much better than I.
1: So. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on your vantage point. So I'm, I'm not very into San Francisco right now. I wouldn't want to live there. Um, I think part of that is San Francisco and a, and a very large part of that is me. Mm-hmm. So I was more aligned with its overriding ethos when I moved there in around 2012. What was uh, that? Than I am now. The, well, it's the um, it's uh, it's got a couple different. I mean, that's what makes it an interesting place. It has a couple different ethoses. So I think the Silicon Valley thing, which um, you know is older, it, it it goes back at least into the early thousands and and probably like in the mm-hmm. in the 90s. Okay, uh, used to be a, a sort of more libertarian ethos, as I understood it. And I've talked to people who were there a little bit before I arrived who who thought of it as like, you know, you'd go to these really cool, these like libertarian parties with um, Balaji, Srinivasan. I heard this really funny story about, um, from someone who went to a party. It just sounds like a perfect description of him if you're you're Mm -hmm. familiar with the guy. Yeah. That basically whenever you'd go to a party with him, inevitably it's like three in the morning, everyone else has left. And there's like a group of 15 coder bros just like surrounding Balaji and rapt attention. (laughs) as he's talking about said. Yeah. Hopefully it's not a bullshit story. But I heard that from a friend. Um, And, you know, those those populations, there's also sort of the Burning Man contingent, which is uh, more exploratory. Uh, People have accused it of being libertarian. I don't really think it's like particularly ideological. It's, um, though there is this sort of personal responsibility bent that uh, I associate very strongly with the Burning Man ethos, Mm. having been there a couple times. Then there's like this classic, like Jack Kerouac, sixties onward, like hippie, um, hippie leftist contingent in San Francisco. Uh, and I, I think what, what people feel over time is that, um, the city became increasingly taken over by like a less culturally rich or diverse or creative, um, cohort of people associated with big tech as big tech sort of started to be fed more from, you know, less ideological people from more mainstream universities. And, uh, over time it developed this like dominant, consistent ideology that, that's, uh, progressive and, and what, uh, what friends used to refer to as fake nice, which I didn't really get, but I, cause, cause I thought people a, were nice there. Yeah.
0: There's a, uh, quote that I've heard, um, people in or on the West, uh, within the United States are fake nice but deep down they're assholes, right? Their, their intentions are yeah. maybe not there or uh, are, are not true when they're speaking to you. Whereas people in the East, uh-huh. they're assholes to you, but they're telling it's kind of like Boston or New York. At least I'm from Massachusetts. It's like people can be seen as rough around the edges, but they're being truthful with you. And like they're, they're. Uh, that's a quote I've heard. And it's not, I'm maybe not depicting exactly the way it was said, but it's like, Essentially, deep down, your intuition or not your intuition, um like your intentions are truthful on the east, but you can be rougher on the edges and just like mm-hmm. just kind of like um you know the the classic boston um and then, yeah, on the West, people will just be yeah fake nice to you, but deep down they they don't mean what they say um so this is like almost like this inverse uh scenario yeah. of cultures on the east and the west.
1: I think, I think that's, that's largely right. I mean, I, I went back, uh, I went back to my fifth year, uh, reunion to Boston from San Francisco and I was, so So the first thing, when I moved to San Francisco, I moved there from China. I didn't move there from the East mm. coast. I hadn't, so it was harder for me to make this comparison the because contrast. China and San Francisco are just like wildly different Yeah, and awesome. Boston and San Francisco are much more similar. Oh. Uh, but when I went back to Boston, I was struck again. Like when you're on the Metro or you're just in public spaces, uh, it feels kind of colder. Like people aren't there. Isn't as much public interaction. There isn't as much like chatting. Mm. Let's say in my memory between people at a coffee shop. I find Austin to be like very friendly. Yeah, in that regard, cool place. Yeah, <laughs> um, but <laughs> Weather, weather's the, great. But yeah, the difference. The difference for me was uh, it's sort of like an unwillingness to make people uncomfortable is what characterizes. Mm. Um, I'm gonna move this. Is what characterizes. Uh, San Francisco for yeah. me, or that that ethos. Yeah. So there's a lot of calculating to try to like preimagine what a person feels or doesn't feel and what would make them uncomfortable mm-hmm. and to assiduously avoid it. Whereas um in, you know, New York, even more than Boston in my mind, I associate like this sort of, this like willingness to confront. And over time what that means is that um what comes across, what is meant to come across in in that sort of environment of greater conformity and consistency as friendliness is often just conflict avoidance and like play acting. Mm. And, uh, over time you can get like conformist trends that feel like, frankly, quite scary and strange to me. And as I became less sort of like politically in accordance with the overarching ideology of San Francisco, it, uh, became very clear to me. Uh, how how stultified I felt, like how how difficult it was for me to like openly speak my mind and have what felt to me to be like an interesting conversation. Um, and how many people around me um, were, I think, essentially like censoring their thought processes without realizing it. Mm. And I had a couple, I mean, I, I've had some conversations with friends where I was, you know, talking about things that I thought were crazy about, like the the sort of mandatory ideology of San Francisco, and they would say things like, yeah, 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 of course, Sasha, like everyone agrees with you. Like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And then the follow-up question I think ought to be, well, like if everyone agrees with me, why is n- nobody, nobody saying it? Like no one says, and they don't agree with me on everything. I'm an extremist and a weirdo. But um, <laughs> on the things that most people agreed with me about, like why, why is there such silence? Why is there this conformity? And it, it started to feel really, really quite suffocating near the end of my time. And particularly in COVID, which is, which is around when I left. Mm. Um, and when I left and I went to Mexico for a bit and then I came here, I just can't imagine returning to that. It feels so natural to me to be more expressive about my thought process and to spend less of my mental cycles, calculating how someone is going to react to something I say, if I believe it. And, um, I think you sort of forget that over a period of time there, but, but for me, like when I moved there, there were more of the sort of like political or ideological, um, or, or, you know, philosophical standpoints that are normative for San Francisco that I agreed with than around the time I left. So, so part of it is certainly the place changing part of it is me. And then of course there's the stuff that, you know, like shows up on Twitter, et cetera, which is like. I think San Francisco was one of the first cities and now what is like becoming just a multi-city trend across the U.S. of, uh, with like sharply spiking homelessness rates, allowance of petty crime, like a general increasing like dirtiness on the streets in a sense that, you know, my brother has a a two and a half year old kid, uh, almost three actually, Mm. in a few months. And, uh, you know, the, the way he put it is basically that this city is not, it's not for children. It's not designed in any way to be a comfortable space where you could like imagine your eight year old kid could like walk around and explore. Uh, and it felt to me at least, and, and some people might agree with this, like, man, I, I wouldn't like, if I had an eight year old kid, I wouldn't want them wandering around the streets of San Francisco, right. not just cause they'll like step on a needle, which was a, a concern that my mom had when I was yeah. a kid in DC, but yeah. like, it just, it doesn't feel like a, it, it feels like it's really kind of falling apart. Um, but it's a beautiful place. It has like a real richness to it. The surrounding area is just stunning. There's a lot it's to It's beautiful in it. regards to yep.
0: the geographics and the, yep. loca- yeah, the location of where it is weather-wise and just, um, yeah, where it is in the United States. And uh, I try not to be super biased with anything, but um, yeah, ever since I've been on Twitter, which really um, started... Primarily during COVID because I was getting into Bitcoin ever since I've, you know, since 2020 to, to now, the sentiment that I received uh, regarding San Francisco is San Francisco, which is by right. Michael Schellenberger, who yep. is a, a journalist, um, pretty prominent journalist, and now has uh, been maybe circled in with like Barry Weiss and um, Taibbi. Taibbi and yep. they're creating their own like independent, which I absolutely commend. And I think it's great because this is a very odd time and very mm-hmm. difficult time for independent journalists to push against the, the grain, which I would love to pick your brain about as well. Um, but yeah, San Francisco, he was just interviewing tons of homeless people. Yeah. And I faintly remember one of the interviews, it was just like, where are you coming from? And it was some other area of the United States. And he mm-hmm. was homeless in that area too. But it was more attractive to come to San Francisco because of, Mm -hmm. it was as if homelessness was incent, maybe not incentivized, but it was just easier for the homeless to condone and maintain their way of who they were. Uh, Yep. And that's concerning. Um, And yeah, yeah, I always, prior to that, I always thought of Full House when it came to San Francisco and how beautiful it was. and. And I never, I've never been to California, but, um, so I can't be a, you know, uh, you know, a critical judge of it, but, um, based off of, you know, the, 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 uh, multiple different perspectives online, at least I can get a general assessment. And I did that for Austin and it has proven to, to -hmm. work out. Right. And so anyways, it's nice to hear, uh, you know, from yourself, the, the sentiment and actual, you know. Um, experience that you had when you were there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, it was a weird. Uh, it moves very quickly, that city. It changes, like, constantly. And um, I think uh, I I arrived during a, a, a pretty interesting time during, like, one of the waves of sort of counter-gentrification protest. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, some crazy shit in, like, 20, 2012, 2011. I guess it was, I think, April of 2012 was when I landed there. But there were, there were these protests against the Google buses that included... Um, people who would dress up as, like, dress up as Googlers and then uh, do bad things to try to, like, provoke bad press. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I remember a couple cases of people who would also, like, climb up on the hoods of these Google buses and, like, force themselves to throw up on the bus. Oh, and there were, decades ago, there were protests against gentrification where people would, like, look for nice cars and slash their tires. Oh, wow. Um, and so there's been... And I was I, I arrived there and I was aware that like on any sort of demographic or or at some point once I got into tech like professional level I was kind of like the enemy of these social movements, mm. and um. Didn't really think I was doing anything wrong. You
0: didn't, you didn't work for Google, did you?
1: No, but I worked in tech. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, one of one of I think there there are definitely parts of the argument that I find appealing or sensible, and and one of the things one of the ways I think you could put it. Is it's not that like someone who doesn't who works for Google isn't like creating a lot of value in the world. They they are at least you know like now I'm, they're creating this tool that like you know millions and millions of people use, or um, you know we at Unchained are creating a tool that is of value to people. But the value we're creating, unlike the value of a coffee shop or the value of like a gym or something, is non-localized, and um, so there's this strange, and also there are these like economies of scale that mean that if you work for Google. You know you're you're extracting value, you're creating value for like so many people that uh you you tend to get wealthier than people who are making this localized value mm-hmm. so over time, what happens is like more and more people are coming to the city and pricing out people who live there who are creating value, but it's like elsewhere, and the creation of the fabric of the space at like the local uh, the is local like becomes culture. harder and harder yeah um there are fewer and fewer people you know and um just sad in a way, but at the yeah. same time, it's just a, uh,
0: it's the process of evolution mm-hmm. in regards to, yeah, tech kind of coming to that space. But yeah, like coffee shops and local businesses that provide that spirit to the city, mm-hmm. they're not making as much money maybe, and that's getting pushed out of the way because of what you were just describing.
1: Yep, totally. Uh, uh-huh. um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the problems, those problems, San Francisco is sort of like the cutting edge of it. But you go to, you go, I mean, near our office in downtown Austin. I haven't gone in that much because I've been mostly working from home. And over the last like two or so months, the homelessness scene around like Brazos and 6th Street, I don't know if you its it just keeps getting worse. And I think uh, in D.C. where I grew up, there, there are like tents and public places that I never saw them as a kid. Um, we're looking at the local manifestations of, of global or at least national problems um, and san francisco was the, the edge of it and i think i think certain local policies exacerbate the problem and per i haven't i haven't read uh Schellenberger's book no. but i think he he advocates for like a shelter first as opposed to like a housing first solution which is to say like give minimal how uh minimal housing but don't um uh essentially the city of san francisco is always like comical in a, the extent there was a time where they spent forty million dollars. I think I'm getting this right, on a like thirteen person housing setup in downtown San Francisco for the homeless, and uh, the the sort of a it's single residency ho- single person housing. So you end up with these like isolated folks. Everyone in the community is is pretty much a drug addict. There's no oversight. There are no incentives to get out of it. Um, it's like completely covered. And i I've, I've talked um, in San Francisco to at least one particular homeless person regularly and gotten a strong sense of her. The incentives are real. I mean, we like to think, uh, that, that no one wants to be homeless fair, like very few people do. Um, but you can change the incentive structure the environment in which people live and it will change in aggregate on the margin, how many people are living one way or another. Mm. And when, uh, you're providing, you know, uh, 40, or maybe it was $13 million for 40 units. At any rate, just like an absurd expenditure. When you're providing housing of that quality in that area for free, for no behavioral changes to people who can freely use that housing for drugs, you're changing the likelihood of people to do that. And um, yeah, I think Schellenberger, Schellenberger also thinks it's primarily a, or largely a drug issue and the the policies in San Francisco in, in dealing with with the homelessness, you know, epidemic uh tended to be allowant or um more concerned with drug safety than drug consumption which these are all i think like reasonable conceptually but i don't think they pan out so like safe needle exchanges in public places with essentially no crackdown on public drug use mm. so you can walk you know all over downtown San Francisco and i believe it's gotten worse And uh, just like every block of anywhere near like the Capitol building or Union Square, the nice touristy areas, you see people like doing, I guess it's like the Baltimore Lean where they're just like tipped over uh, in like a a heroin state. And it's just constant everywhere. It's like a ghost town. There are blocks where you're surrounded by, you know, 50 people and like none of them are mentally present and there's no uh, interest in or capacity to fix that the problem is deemed to be the judgment about that or attempts to stop it and I just I just don't think the. I think the problem gets worse when that's the mindset um
0: how do you think yeah. what's the best way to probably so it's probably so complex but how do you foresee us um helping um, homelessness and drug use I mean I eventually it's like getting rid of drugs potentially. Um, or
1: yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reasonably libertarian. Uh, Mm -hmm. so I have some internal, I, I don't think, uh, prohibition of alcohol was a good idea. I don't think prohibition of cocaine is probably a good idea. I think the costs of prohibition are exceptionally high, even if taking the drug is, is a terrible idea. I think that's possible that that crosses over at a certain point.
0: I was going to say, what about like fentanyl?
1: Yeah. Fentanyl sounds, sounds pretty bad. <laughs> um, it's
0: like a, just it's not even a sliver of it can right? kill you.
1: And, and they're drugs that, you know, at least conceptually rob you of your autonomy to a great degree. Mm-hmm. Like if I, it's a, it's a hard question, but um, if you were to take a drug and it basically Um, how would you put it?
0: It just numbs you. It just takes away your, uh, agency.
1: I just, just on a, like a philosophical level, if you could say like you take fentanyl and it, uh, let's say like you take X drug and it increases to a likelihood of 90% that you'll go crazy and murder someone. Like, should we prohibit this drug? You know, the taking of the drug is not murder. It's not like a, it's not you're only doing something to yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's statistically increasing the likelihood of this danger by Chaos, a very significant yeah, degree. Yeah. Um, when when does there start to be a right... Or you could think of this on, uh, in relation to drinking and drunk driving. You know, drinking is mostly a threat to yourself. You can get in fights, whatever. But um, it certainly increases the likelihood that you will drive drunk. We don't think that's a good enough reason to... Um, you know, and driving drunk drastically increases the likelihood you'll kill someone. We don't think that's a good enough reason to prohibit it but if you like slid those percentage likelihoods up there's a point at which at which we do um I also think one thing like the the sort of status quo involved in I've I've no idea what the hell I'm talking about when it comes to like how how to solve these problems I really do want to read Michael Schellenberger's book but I haven't gotten to it I think he's a very thoughtful reasonable person um and he's he's very embedded in these issues and he's thought about them a lot mm-hmm. and he's interviewed a lot of people. Um, I, I tend to find him compelling. Uh, and he's also very non-ideological. He's like, you know, a liberal-ish person who's, you know, finds himself like awash in the modern political moment. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I would also say that the status quo of sort of ignoring or allowing deleterious drug use on the streets of a city is So very negative that arresting someone who's doing fentanyl and throwing them in a jail where they have no access to it, where they have like, okay, shelter, where they have regular access to food is probably better for them than leaving them on the street. That makes me somewhat uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of, um, of like a state or any institution having a right to just like take you for something that you do to yourself and put you in a cage that makes me very uncomfortable, but I, I think, um, part of it is this question of allegiances to bring it back to like my, my brother's deal about kids. It's like, who is the city for? Like, what is our, what is our polity about? Like, who is the citizenry? What matters here? Um, and I think the citizenry, like the, the sorts of polities I want to be a part of are ones in which like peaceful, productive, I, I, I feel like that's a sort of loaded term, but people who are like trying to work for others, trying to voluntarily and peaceably exchange for others um, who are not like risks to others. Those are the people who the polity is for. And um, if in some hypothetical, you have people who are making it more difficult for those people to like raise families that are, uh, you know, in in a way that they feel are like safe and happy and healthy. um, We have to prioritize one group over another. I, I don't, I, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't so, say I have a solution to anything. It's so
0: complex because, yeah, I, I do resonate as a, uh, you know, being within the Bitcoin culture and, um, libertarian mindset. I, I've definitely leaned towards that. I actually voted for the libertarian candidate when it was Trump and Biden last. Gary? Yeah. Uh, was it oh, Gary or Justin, was it, it? Oh, it was, uh, it was um. Joe. Uh, no. s-
1: Jill Stein was the Green Party in No, I'm trying to remember her name. Yeah, yeah, And I hear Joe Jorgensen.
0: Joe Jorgensen. Yeah. Yeah, I voted for her. My father also is pretty libertarian as well. And I'm all for free markets. And, um, yeah, but at the same time, what everything that you just eloquently described, if you have people that are creating and contributing to humanity in a way that's, as you said, it, Peaceful is, is kind of like a vague term, but if they're harmoniously providing a, uh, energy or, or contribution or creation towards making the ecosystem more livable and towards, um, yeah, making it, I mean, I guess, I don't know if secure is the correct word, but, um, uh, yeah, you, you want that to thrive, right? And at the same time, there's, uh, something that I've heard from other podcasts is like pain is information. And over time, if you're overly comfortable, you tend to become weaker and that's the whole weak men or good times creates weak men and bad times create strong men. And we're at that point where it might be weak men right now in society. And, uh, yeah, there's just, um, it's I think that that issue is so complex. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there's just that, I think the pain thing is interesting to me that there's, uh, I believe it's multiple sclerosis, sorry if I'm wrong, but that's uh, where, where essentially like your nerve endings become less capable, at least in certain parts of your body, detecting pain so you could like leave your hand on a, something that would burn you without realizing it. Mm. And we experience pain because pain is feedback. And uh, a lot of the policies, certainly policies related to homelessness have to do with like pain reduction and trying to sort of like smooth off the edges mm. of an experience, which is to try to decrease the the natural feedback of what happens if you make decisions that undermine your ability mm. to just like support yourself and behave peaceably with those around you. And, um, you know, that, that, that decision, the decision to, to act in a way that makes it more difficult for you to support yourself and behave peaceably with people around you produces costs and there's a question of like where those costs are allocated then in the society. And if the society makes decisions to try to like soften that blow, it's absorbing those costs increasingly. And it's, it's creating incentives. Um, I I, I know people don't like the incentives thing, but it's, it's increasing the likelihood on the margins that people will behave in that way. Mm. You know, the, the margins being, um, you know, someone who's like maybe considering trying fentanyl or some drug that's, you know, ends up being laced with fentanyl and their models for the risks associated with that are, um, less extremely horrifying than they maybe ought to be. Mm. Um, I mean, and I think, uh, you can sort of relate this to, um, to sort of broader health discussions a a little bit. I mean, I don't want to get too far afield, but I I feel like when you talk about a, uh, we we tend to have a focus when we talk about health in broader society, about like health care systems or health insurance, et cetera. And these are essentially like mitigating and spreading costs. And when you mitigate and spread the costs of an individual's behavior, and and I, I know that's also a thing that people find offensive or uncomfortable, but like a very, very large, probably majority of health issues have at least a significant behavioral component associated mm-hmm. with them. And uh, one of the things that happens when you take the the costs that accrue from, from meeting a particular way or not getting enough sleep or like not wanting to exercise, et cetera, and you spread them further away from the individual making the decision is that uh, you increase the amount of, I think we talked about this last time we were at Jester King a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, we did. But you, you increase the total amount of those sorts of decisions being made, again at the margin a little bit. No one wants to be unhealthy. Mm. But you'd rather be unhealthy than be like unhealthy and poorer. Mm. Right. And so there's a there's a very tight, careful balance to be weighed when having these discussions to, to make sure we're not generating systems that produce the sort of thing we're trying to protect against when we're trying to make that thing more uh livable. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so-
0: um, there's uh the Austin Alliance here in um, downtown mm-hmm. Austin. They are all wearing red shirts. Ah, yeah, yeah. I've seen yeah. Those guys. I don't know if that's something that's typical for cities, where mm-hmm. my guess is is property taxes here in Texas are those taxes are being allocated to Austin Alliance, and that's something that I approve of. And I have uh I got here in September of 2021, um, and when i got here uh was it prop a or prop b that was um try- was a decision a policy to uh ban homeless camping within the city and i think mm-hmm. it passed or the ultimate uh outcome was that homeless can't uh, reside via their tents and their camping in the in the city um and prior to that there was a lot of Uh, that, that was acceptable and it was interesting because as I got here in September of 2021, I was watching, um, all these different locations, uh, within a 10 minute radiance of downtown Austin, all the, all the camping went away and it was going Mm -hmm. away. And I think there was actual enforcement to ship them. And I Mm -hmm. think Governor Abbott has actually taken them, or at least this is maybe for the border, but, uh, he ships them out to like TC or sanctuary cities and whatnot. Um, and so yeah homeless has been i've i've seen they they camp out in the woods now go disc golfing and they're in the woods somewhere in the in the course and mm. or like certain parts of um anyways um it's a huge issue obviously and something that's so complex that i i don't think one human person or program or company or whatever could fix um it's just something that we though uh, mm. as a uh, uh, members of Unchained, previously Unchained Capital, like where I, I remember Phil actually tweeting this uh, during the Prob A or I think it's Prob B and Parker was really for this as well. Parker Lewis, who used to work for Unchained. Um, he's an advisor now. and But uh, he was very um, outspoken about this uh, homeless camping uh, policy. Um, but then Phil tweeted about it and just to kind of show his support and saying how like, currently we're focused on the root of the issue which is bitcoin in our money system mm-hmm. and um for now you know voting in this way can help with providing a more li- li- he, he didn't i'm totally paraphrasing and I'm, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth but it was essentially like we're working on the root of the the, the problem almost being the problem maybe uh other uh degrading aspects of society uh we're working on that but Right now it's not as livable when you have this, when you allow this. Um and so all that's to say, I'm trying to think of where we were in your in your personal story. You were in San Francisco and so now you're
1: here now. You're here now. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Yeah, I moved uh, to Mexico for a bit, but yeah. Yeah. how was that?
1: That's dope. Yeah. Um yeah, Mexico City is one of the great cities. Yeah. And I I I went there in early mid COVID. I was trying to um I, I think that San Francisco really like became pretty unlivable yeah uh in in terms of just like that you're paying more than you're paying for yeah, housing yeah, in yeah. Austin, yeah, and everything's boarded up, and you can't go outside without a mask without getting yelled at, which happened to really me mm-hmm. very often, and uh yeah it, just, it, it happened I to re- me in really didn't like it, yeah,
0: I was like walking down Cambridge, I lived really close to Cambridge Common, yeah, and then you yeah. That's right next to Harvard Square. I
1: remember that feeling a little bit like a drug scene at some point.
0: Cambridge Common. Yeah. yeah. Um. Not, when I was there, not too much. Okay. Uh But, uh, yeah, I was just like, I was going for a jog. Mm-hmm. I didn't have my mask on. Yeah. Guy was on his bike and he yells at me. <laughs> I was like, dude,
1: what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah. I just think it's, yeah, The the really awful thing about the whole deal for me was that like I, I, you know, as I mentioned, I'm like a proselytizer. I want to like convince people of, I hold opinions strongly, loosely, but strongly, you know, like I'm really into it. Uh, and I would want to talk to people about like why I think this isn't, these masks, there's just no evidence for them. The sort of studies that, that are being used as evidence are, are modeling. So they start with the assumptions that they work and then they say, Hey, if they work, they work. There's um, there was also like
0: potentially the virus could stay in the mask and like sure. you could absorb the virus even more
1: or just other health effects when you when you sort of like change yeah. the the mix of gases that you're taking in regularly um and uh th- there were attempts at at you know placebo controlled like meaningful trials those attempts were like utterly underwhelming there was a danish one and a bangladeshi one that just didn't really show any efficacy and at any rate came out like a year and a half after these things were mandated even though they were never recommended recommended for flu viruses. And like, there are a lot of arguments yeah, you could yeah. make. And the thing is you you can't cause like you're, you can't even get close to the person. You're not really supposed to be speaking outdoors. You know, they think you're like, you're the virus, you're the enemy. And there was just, it was so perfectly designed to be like irresolvable through discourse. Um, you know, we can't all go to the local watering hole and like talk it out. We go to our little silos in the internet, um, where we get like perfectly um exclusive views of the world. Um, or the Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy had this mm-hmm. old image during, you know, twenty sixteen of, of basically like the left and the right were just watching two different movies. Yeah. Uh like two different edits of the same world. And, um, certainly, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what the sides were during COVID, but that, that was the case. And then like all your ability to reconcile those two different views yeah. is taken away from you by the very thing you're arguing about. It was bad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I tried to get the hell out. My brother had just had, um, you know, my nephew in Mexico city, uh, my brother's wife had just had my nephew in yeah, Mexico yeah, city. Yeah. And, uh, I went to visit them and to, you know, I quit my job. I started freelancing, um. And like wanted to just like live a normalish existence mm-hmm. and spent about a half a year there and just had the best time. It's such a wonderful place. It's nice. like green and walkable. It has perfect weather, excellent food, hip as shit, like really just diverse and and massive. You mm-hmm. know, there's sort of like the hipster core of the city, which is a, um, you know, whenever ev- anyone visits Mexico City, they're, they're in like Condesa or Roma or wherever. But um, outside of that, there's just like more and more and more. And the country itself is this like very friendly place, you know, wonder, I think Mexican Spanish is just like super fun Mm. and, uh, great beaches, very geographically diverse and culturally diverse and rich and just cool, great place had an awesome time. It's awesome.
0: Um, and so after Mexico, you went to Austin?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, joined, joined the company when I was, uh, in Mexico and, uh, and then moved here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. Well, man, there's so many different threads I would like to go down. One is like your article also unchained and Bitcoin. I think we could start with um, just describing Unchained. Um, the And a question that came up was, it, it came up when you were talking about Google and mm-hmm. tech in Silicon Valley within this the Bay Area uh, back in the 2000s, early 2000s, and how Austin's It seems to me that it's becoming a Bitcoin hub for Mm -hmm. developers, entrepreneurs, um, thinkers and Unchain is providing a really amazing, well, they're, they're helping, um, uh, sponsor for the Bitcoin commons and where we can kind of have like an open actual in, in real life, open square for people to host events. And it's been really, uh, I've been really grateful to witness it and, um, I've been kind of busy with the podcast so i haven't gone to as many events as i used to um over you know the course of the the past six months but anyways austin does um have this interesting mix of what the city mm-hmm. is and like the fact what attracted me was bitcoin right it was it was the foundation of my motivation was uh well how am i gonna get how am i gonna get paid uh, this is coming from like a um hierarchy of needs mindset here, but like, yeah, how am I going to get paid if I'm going to move there? But, uh, also is it, it, Austin has this unique pocket or multiple unique pockets of demographics of when it comes to like comedy and music and Bitcoin enthusiasts that have this freedom, uh, digital freedom, um, mindset and, and, uh, and, and, uh, vision and, uh, then you come to Squatch and there's, I don't meet many Bitcoiners here. There's some, but like, it's, you, you can talk to them. And mm-hmm. it was, it was very, very apparent. It's, I'm so like, I've been so immersed into this bubble of Squatch. Right. But coming from like Boston and coming mm-hmm. to here and then talking to people in the sauna and it was, it was just a fresh breath of air and a sigh of relief of like, yeah. when I was in Cambridge. You could just feel, um, the inability. It's kind of like what you were describing Mm -hmm. about, like, people just don't want to talk about, um, they, they censor themselves, right? And
1: it's the uh, worst. Yeah. And and that that was just so, so
0: it was very unpleasant in Boston. I would, I'd walk around Boston and it was just like depressing during COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, still to this day, Massachusetts is a little bit, uh, Behind when it comes to you know moving on from COVID in comparison to like Texas, mm-hmm. um, and so um, kind of rambling, but coming here, the the foundation was Bitcoin, and now I'm just so uh, happy with the diversity of different, um, just my my lifestyle here in Austin, it's, mm-hmm. it's been great. Uh,
1: yeah, same. And, I mean, I that's that's why I came here for yeah, sure. And yeah, squatch. Um, I'm beginning to get into like uh, salsa and two-step dancing and trying mm. to like build the thing around that because yeah. it's just really fun. Yeah. And there's a whole community. I mean, the two-step scene in Austin and generally like the, the country music, um, what are they called? Uh, honky tonk. Yeah. <laughs> the honky tonk yeah, scene yeah. is like, it's great. It's yeah. really fun. And the the lake in quotes, which is like a, a river. I really don't understand the bodies Late, of water. It's like
0: ladybird lake, but it yeah. seems like it's a river when you look at it from like an aerial view yeah it's like it's like boy it's like separating the city of austin and then like south congress and other parts of south austin but yeah it's a lake but it looks like a river and i don't know
1: yeah it's a cool place and the heat is wonderful yeah i I enjoy it yeah Yeah.
0: my my parents are like they look at it and they're like that's nuts it's 100 degrees like every day for two months but i get i've gotten acclimated to it and even though i'm from new england uh i don't think i'm built for the cold. um I just would have like, maybe this is a sign of health too, my, just the status of my, uh, current levels of, um, health metrics. But at the time when I was, yeah, in certain, when I was in Massachusetts in the cold, it was sort of like poor circulation in my hands and my mm-hmm. feet. And it was just like, did not feel, uh, like I was b- built for the, the cold climate, but, um, I like, I like to, uh, go, oh yeah. So go back to Google versus like unchained, um, obviously it's drastically different. Um, and.
1: Unchained is the Google of, uh. <laughs> no,
0: I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. We, we, uh, Unchained definitely, uh, has, uh, maybe a vision of being like the, the Goldman Sachs of, of Bitcoin. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I don't know how Goldman Sachs is perceived nowadays, but maybe when Goldman Sachs had a reputable, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, big banks are not really looked upon with a, mm-hmm. uh, the appro the mo- like approval nowadays, big mm-hmm. banks in general. Um, but uh at a time I think maybe they were. Uh anyways. Yeah, I, I, I don't I, know. Yeah. Uh
1: I think banking I think people haven't liked banking for a very long time. Yeah. 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 Well anyways they I, needed it. It's like important. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um we don't really have to we can kinda like sideswipe Google here, but just just um how has your experience with Unchained Ben, and then also what motivated you to join the company and what do you maybe to to a layman like or in layman's terms what yeah unchained is doing so there's like three questions there
1: yeah um well i joined unchained because i at some point started looking exclusively to work for a bitcoin company which i'm sure seems strange to non-bitcoiners but it was like i got really into this technology when i was down in mexico and I was I was talking to everybody about it. I was talking to my Spanish tutor Dude, about it. Dude, I couldn't
0: it. stop either.
1: I was um I alienating dates about it all the time. Sometimes the dates were not alienated, which was very exciting. And yeah. uh, pitching Bitcoin in Spanish is like <laughs> one of the great achievements of my life. <laughs> but uh, I just needed to talk to people about it who weren't like you know putting up with me, mm. but who, who like met the other side of the conversation and were enthusiastic. And I went to the Bitcoin 2020. I think it was 2020 conference in Miami, which was just like a, this bizarre rager where like suddenly no one's wearing a mask and like everyone got COVID and um, (laughs) I got COVID and, uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to join a Bitcoin company. I tried briefly, I worked for like two or three months for a, maybe less than that part time for a crypto company, which I thought I'd like get some exposure to and I just, I. I found myself essentially rooting against it, mm. um, also interviewing for other companies um, for a variety of reasons, and, and also just thinking it would die. <laughs> so I was like, that's not really what I want to do. What I really want to do is work with people who I like see eye to eye on this technology about something I find enormously important. And so I interviewed for a number of Bitcoin companies that appealed to me a lot and ended up choosing Unchained. For a variety of reasons, one of them is is it's in Austin. I wanted to like physically be with people, mm-hmm. like um you know, Strike for instance is an international workforce entirely, um, and I I really missed working in an office, which I'm not doing right now, all that often, <laughs> and you know, just like you know, having colleagues in person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then I think Unchained is is extremely important. Something like Unchained in in the ecosystem, which is, um, you know, uh, people who aren't that familiar with cryptocurrencies or bitcoin in particular um i i don't think really understand or, or like feel the impact of self custody which is this is not just a digital commodity but like essentially the only thing that we have that you can own absolutely and uh unilaterally and send without permission so you can imagine like you have your house and you think you own your house you own it but like your ownership is contingent upon the government right like your property right is recorded by the government and you know eminent domain literally like can be taken by the government um many things are are taken non legally right like things can be pretty easily stolen and uh at any rate if you own gold let's say and you had it in a safe which i was i was thinking about doing when the when the war with russia and ukraine broke uh broke out uh you start to realize the limitations of this Mm. which are, you know, your flimsy security in your house. If you were to like trade it in for something, you know, like at a bank or, or one of these gold ETFs or like, you know, birch gold, something like that. Um, you're, you're holding an IOU for something. Uh, we're used to this because this is every asset that we have in the world.
0: Even your bank too. Your, yeah, your your, your bank, bank can the money in your bank is technically an IOU. Everybody consider considers it theirs because they earned it, but it, yeah. Do you have to ask permission for the bank to...
1: And it is denied. It <laughs> like can be very much denied. It can be denied. Um, I've had, for for not like sinister reasons, Uh, you know, there was like some sort of identity question or something like that, or I, I ordered a new debit card and it didn't reach me. And so I had a, can- and, you know, periods of two to three weeks where that IOU is just not redeemable. Mm. Um, That's fine for me. For some people, it's not. And at any rate, it draws home this notion that like you hold a claim on something that someone else owns. Yeah. And that claim can be denied. And that is our universe. That's like everything. yeah. Um, except these cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, in particular, uniquely uh, Bitcoin, when you get to like the absoluteness of that ownership. That if you have this, this seed phrase, if you have these sort of like 12 words that basically compute a random number that is the private key that gives you access to the lockbox with your funds. Uh, you own that. You own it. Like no one can take it away from you. And, uh, you
0: could essentially store those, those words in your head and you could deprecate every physical evidence of those words, right? Mm -hmm. So you could cross, there's actual people that have crossed borders from maybe a communist regime or totalitarian regime. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, They have Left San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: But like leaving maybe, yeah, some, some country and coming to America and there's clearly, you know, nothing on you. Right. And, but you can remember those 12 words, go back get a device like a uh, bitcoin yeah. um, signing device right import that c phrase in there and you have the private key which is a little yeah. bit more complex and involves crypto yeah um, i'm sorry uh cryptography um but that's the beauty of it too is like yeah. you don't need anything unless a,
1: i was i was just thinking of that scene from zoolander where uh where they try to like get information from the computer because because there's a common misconception that like your, your hardware wallet or your signing device there's a lot of like just tons of debate at Unchained yeah. about what we should call these things. Yeah. But that that like holds the money. And it doesn't. It's a thing for computing, like a, a thin layer of software that helps you like compute and broad, compute a number from a set of words, essentially, mm-hmm. and then broadcast transactions, sign them and broadcast them. Yeah. Uh, to the network. Um, usually it's like air gapped. It doesn't touch the internet. Yeah. Um, And, and you may save your, your keys on there for a while, but it's not, your money isn't on there. Mm-hmm. Your money is is associated with this infinitely large number, mm. like close to the number of atoms in the universe. And that large number produces another large number that's the address. And it's just like, if you have the n- number A, you can unlock number B. And that's it. Mm. It's, it's wild. It's such a strange concept. Yeah. And um, at any rate, that is extraordinarily powerful. And it's absolutely fucking terrifying. Because if you lose that number, if you have like $10 million in that number and you lose that number or you forget one of those 12 words, it's gone. Mm -hmm. There is no recovery process. You can't go to like the Bureau of Bitcoin and like ask for a backup and like prove your identification. Mm -hmm. It's gone. You have absolute ownership and absolute responsibility. And so this problem of how you handle that tremendous novel gift, which is extraordinarily powerful, is a very fundamental problem. And I believe what Sort of Unchained's core service, which is we refer to as collaborative custody, mm-hmm. is probably the best solution for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what that is, is it leverages uh, Bitcoin's native multi-signature capacity, which is to say you can create an address, or you know like a public, an address. You could think of it as a lockbox, in which you put your money, and that lockbox is essentially like this transparent thing. Everyone can see where the money is, but they can't access it. Unless they have two out of the three or three out of the four, you can come up with some multi-signature setup of the keys that are required by the script that encumbers this money in order to access it. And so that's multi-signature. So you have three keys. You need any two of them to open it. And that's already better than having one that you can forget. And you Mm -hmm. can sort of distribute records of these in various places if you want or secure them in a variety of ways. So real quick, a Mm -hmm. a great example that I...
0: I personally witnessed and and spoke to a client about with, um, our colleague, Tyler Campbell. Uh, this, this client, um, had a business partner. They had their own vault, right? So they had two key, they had two of three keys, two of those keys being theirs and the third one being on chains. And, uh, they had an actual physical vault in their house, right? Mm -hmm. And that physical vault stored the signing device and the seed phrase pertaining to the Mm -hmm. signing device. So the total of four elements, they had the two elements. Co-located. Yeah. Co-located. Stolen, um, if that was a single SIG, uh, setup, all their Bitcoin's gone. Right. But mm-hmm. what they were able to do is contact their business partner. We created a new vault. Um, mm-hmm. they signed with the, uh, key that they still maintain with the business, the other business partner Unchained stepped in, signed, swept the funds into a new vault, shipped them a new device. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, if you were just using a ledger and you only had the Bitcoin on that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this, that was a single SIG approach. You're fucked. All of your Bitcoin's gone. Um, yep. And yeah. It, it, so anyways, I just want to provide that um, anecdotal.
1: Let's uh, anecdotal. That, that's basically the difference. You described the difference between multisig and the, and the um, collaborative custody model that is mm. unchained. Yeah. Right, where you, you could do your own multisig and if you lose one in one vault, then you have two other keys and you still yeah. get to it. Um, do that with nunchuck, I think, right now. But there's a lot of technical complexity involved in, say, then the question, how the hell do you move all your funds that were associated with, these two keys to another setup that no longer uses this key Mm. that was just stolen Mm -hmm. because you don't want it. You don't want them to be able to see where the money is ideally. You don't, you certainly don't want them to be able to steal it if they get one more key. So you need to do what, what we call at Unchained. I think it's internal language, like a sweeping of all the funds in in your vault. Um, There's just a lot of complexity involved in this problem. And so what Unchained does is they, they offer to be one of the three keys in a setup. That's our most typical vault setup. And what that means is that you have two keys, but you can always rely on Unchained to have another. so let's say you're traveling. you can travel with one one hardware device, and uh, I mean this is a use case that I think would be particularly useful for me because most of most of my bitcoin, which I don't have I lost it all years ago, is distributed amongst uh like keys in in different geographies mm-hmm. and um I can't spend most of it right now like if i if i if some emergency came up i like I've orchestrated this such that like I'm not able to easily spend it, um, so it's more secure. But with Unchained, I could travel with a key, and if something came up, I could get in touch with them and I could prove my identity. um, A complicated thing in the modern day. Mm -hmm. And then um, they can collaboratively spend the funds because together we have two keys. But Unchained, if everyone at our company wanted to steal your money and you stored it with us, we couldn't. Mm -hmm. There's like the whole, we couldn't get together and do it because we have set it up in such a way that we do not have sufficient uh, the sufficient keys to, to sign the function, mm-hmm. to prove cryptographic ownership in a way that the validators on the Bitcoin network would would accept. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's all of this utility that derives from having Unchain be part of it. We can help you sweep. We can help you rekey. We can like help onboard you and teach you how to do these things that remain and will remain somewhat complicated and walk you through the complexity involved, but you retain absolute ownership. Mm. Um, and that balance, I think, is really the best balance.
0: And in comparison to like Coinbase.
1: Yeah. Which you have, I think the right wording for this is you have an account with Coinbase. You, you don't, you know, we talk about custodial or non-custodial ownership. I I find that term very confusing. Um,
0: you could say like Bitcoin yeah. IOU versus actually o- right.
1: owning your Bitcoin. You own it or you have an account with a company that owns it. And the company that owns it can then, you know, misspend it i mean this just happened with uh, oh, so many over the course of the past year Blogfi, prime trust recently celsius yeah um it was mount gox was the big one years and years ago yeah. ftx obviously yeah um they 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 just like you've given your money to these people who just don't know how to handle it or don't care to handle it and, and there's no
0: yeah like you said there's no um bureau of bitcoin like, like yeah. once that all, all of the downfall of ftx and celsius and all that it's you're not getting anything back. You're probably not going to get any insurance or or Mm -hmm. something redeemable from the bankruptcy process. Yeah. Uh, Is my guess, right?
1: Well, in in order to do it, they would have to, I mean, the thing, you can't print more Bitcoin to make people whole. Right. So you basically, maybe, maybe they can print or extract by taxes from other people, which I hope they would not do, money, like dollars that would pay for more Bitcoin to make these people whole. Mm. But it's, yeah, yeah, it it cannot be done. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a hugely important service to, Mm. to figure out and we do a a really, I think, an excellent job of it. Um, and, uh, the sort of founding a lot of very smart people who I am just like so blown away by how, how smart and committed you know, most of the team is to this. Yeah. It's like,
0: it's it's one hell of a team man. it's It's very healthy company right now and still technically a startup. Right. So uh, we're trying to mature and it's, um, I'm so, I feel truly lucky to be a part of the team. I did not feel qualified to be part of the startup when I joined and that was back in 2021 Mm -hmm. and I was just so blown away when I was accepted and, um, honored and, um, Yeah, every day that I work for the company, it's, uh, just, yeah, it's, it's a privilege. Now, um, and there's not really anybody building the infrastructure. Like there's people that, uh, you know, like Nunchuck or, um, Casa and other people that are Mm -hmm. making somewhat of a similar product. Right. But there's Mm -hmm. no one really doing anything that we're doing. Like we're building a financial services, uh, call it software platform Mm -hmm. that leverages the network and providing you with like, you know, a, um, a, you know, top tier team that has the, has expertise in some of the complexities, the technical complexities, you know, our technical concierge team, they've been doing this for so for a while now. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a it's truly, um, an amazing company to work for. And, uh, I think you, you definitely described it pretty eloquently. Um, what is uh, your future for like the Bitcoin commons and the Bitcoin culture here in Austin? What do you foresee or, or at least hope to see?
1: I mean, I, I do think a lot of um, the the energy around this space is like defined by a core contingent that's completely obsessed and will just like focus on it endlessly. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, you you go to BitDevs in Austin on, on like, you know, it's one Thursday every month. And you'll see just like this impossibly over your head technical dialogue about all of the, all of the progress that's being made and like all of the thousand fronts associated with this technology. Mm -hmm. And usually just to clarify, that's not some portion of that usually small is debates around changes to the underlying technology. And and a majority of it is like building an ecosystem around a technology that many people believe is like largely or close to sufficient as a base layer for the future of money. Mm. Um, but then a lot of the technology is, is like, or sorry, not the technology. A lot of the interest is more curiosity oriented and, uh, that waxes and wanes in correlation to the trajectory of the price. Um, so, I mean, I think, uh, when to some degree we, we've entered this sort of like stable builders environment, mm. you know, for the last like year or so that I've been here where this core group of obsessives is just like plugging away at their shit. And, um, if when I suspect somewhat soon, there's a, like another slow or rapid increase in price, you're going to see like another sort of like explosion of interest in the technology that, um, you know, is, is, is exciting and kind of terrifying because there's basically it grows. It's, it's a classic anti-fragile technology. It basically grows in response to like threats and threats can be purposeful or they can be like, Oh my God, like a million people just got on the lightning network or like there's all this excitement about ordinals, which, you know, was a whole weird little corner debate in Bitcoin for a week. Um, and that pushes up fee rates that then make it harder to, uh, Cause errors with forced closing of lightning channels. None of this has to make sense to anyone listening. And uh, essentially, the like any sharp, drastic change in the network exposes its weaknesses, and then the sort of organism. I mean, if you want to hear obsession, this is the way I sort of think about. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is like this little plant that like some some person, group of people, alien, uh, planted. Like, you know, in, uh, is it 20... 2000...
0: 20... Technically the network. Yeah, so the white paper was 2008. Network's, uh, Genesis Block, 2009.
1: Yeah, so, so he or she or, you know, whoever. Alien. Um, alien. I like uh, that one better. Sends a, sends a message out to, like, this, um... <laughs> the, the word kitties. you remember cryptocities Yeah. It came to my mind. But sends a message out to this, uh, Cyberpunk mailing list. Explains via white pa- paper, like, his or her, it's the it mm-hmm. aliens thinking about this topic and then uh starts mining and showing people how to mine and like releases this organism into the world that structures around itself it's an it's an organism and it structures around itself a set of incentives that have encouraged for now north of like you know 12 13 years other people to get in and help it grow and to clear obstacles out of its way and to become invested often in like a monetary level in its well-being, And so there's this thing, I remember, I think I had a dream about this. It may have been like after some, I don't know, but it's, it's so, it's really strange when you think about it, but I think that that's basically what it is. It's, it's composed of, it's this organism composed of all this human activity Mm -hmm. and probably increasing in the future, like cybernetic activity. That's not the right word, but, um. You know, like AIs, et cetera, trying to like exchange value with Mm -hmm. one another, pay pay for compute services, et cetera. Yeah. It's this organism composed of so many other things that like continues to grow and get more robust as it solves the problems of the people who are invested in it, who become more invested in it as it becomes more robust. And it just grows and grows and grows and no one's in charge of it. And all these people are like tending to it and like pruning the weeds around it. And it's really, it's really strange. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that goes in, in like it ebbs and flows, it goes in yeah. waves and, uh, you know, people accuse cryptocurrency broadly and certainly the Bitcoin space in particular being like very focused on this number, it's number go up technology. And, mm-hmm. and I think over the last you know year and a half, I haven't tracked it too closely, but I'd say generally the number hasn't gone up that much. And, uh, there, the, the reason that matters among other things, you know, like we own, or I used to own. Some Bitcoin is that uh it it provokes it makes it more secure the more money is in it, and it provokes more interest. You get more people working on it, more people using it, it becomes a more robust and useful technology for people as as uh, the price goes up and so so it's a metric of concern, but there's also this niceness about having long periods of time where in response to previous threats, you get to fix it in preparation for new ones you get to improve the experience yeah for for new people who are likely to be like what the hell is this i need to get in mm. you know a year or whatever yeah
0: yeah um i do think uh that's that's very well said um and i do think austin's trajectory um you know you've got mm-hmm. new york city as the cap the finance capital of the world right and uh it'd be interesting to see austin becoming the bitcoin capital of the world like Parker ten, tends to uh, you know um, verbalize but uh, something that I wanted to ask you uh, for anybody that's like a part of the squatch community and not really immersed into Bitcoin why is it important for the average individual to save in Bitcoin because a lot of people you know they can't wrap or maybe they have the wrong mental model or conception of well, it's a very expensive investment and I just can't spend that much. It's like, well, there's so many people here that spend money on their health all the time and they spend on products. Don't do that. Yeah, never, just (laughs) fuck your health. Uh, But uh, I think that, you know, when we change the framework, the mental framework of why it's so important to save in Bitcoin, uh, the average individual here training uh, at Squatch or anywhere that's not really in the Bitcoin hub, um, I think you know, their, their minds can kind of be blown by, um, you know, when that framework changes and that it takes a lot because you have to understand our current monetary system, which I really enjoyed your article, which we can get to, uh, your Substack writing was very well, uh, um, orchestrated, uh, written. Um, but I would just like to hear if you were, yeah, if, 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 uh, you were just talking to someone, which I'm sure you already have, that hasn't really no plan on investing in bitcoin anytime soon or even sa- i like i just say saving i save yeah. it. i save in bitcoin i used to save in bitcoin uh would love to hear how you would describe that or explain it
1: yeah well so um like i like i sort of alluded to a minute ago there's this weird thing with bitcoin where um th- it it causes alignment and in some cases there's there's an alignment uh a- alignment of incentives there's an alignment or association between the reasons that we believe this is an important technology that ought to exist and would make the world better and the reasons that you should invest in it. They're they're actually quite overlapping, which is again, strange. Um, And I'd, I'd start with that, which is um, basically, and and there's a joke about this. There was a Silicon Valley clip years ago where like someone was asked about cryptocurrency or something like whips out a whiteboard and like writes like what is money something like that. But it's like, Money is this extraordinarily, it, we don't tend to think about it day to day, but money, the nature of money, first of all, money is a like timeless human technology. It, it is at least older than the written word, which we know because the first written records are of monetary transactions. Mm. Um, and it is, it forms the foundation of society, of human societies of any complexity and scale. And like the reason we have monetary records going back to the beginning of civilization almost certainly because you cannot have civilization without money. And um, what it is is essentially the codification or the transformation of human labor or human time, basically the same thing, uh, into a universal language of value, of what people value. And that enables the cooperation of society at scale and forms the foundation of like a world in which we can all cooperate to build the things that we want together to like produce worlds of value to one another and a flawed money or a debased money is like erodes at this foundation of society so so if you have a monetary system in which a few people can create out of nothing what other people sweat and spend their lives on you have a system of like functional servitude that and and we would argue that is to a great degree the system we live in now um, and and you don't tend to think of it, but when you're working for dollars, uh, you know much worse the case if you're working for like a bolivar in Venezuela or a lira or you know whatever else. You're working for something that other people are in a position to make a decision to like destroy the value of, and you are spending your life on that thing. Uh, you have limited time on this planet, and you are spending it for something that other people can inflate away. So obviously this causes inflation, of course. I mean, there are debates around this, but like if you double the mon- number of monetary units in circulation, you are uh, doubling the amount of money pursuing, you know, all things held equal, the same number of goods or items in an economy, things produced of value to people. But it, it also causes um uh, it causes inequality. So it, you know, the the way the money surfaces in the system for the servitude point is not equal. And it's not related to fair things like, you know, work or creation of value for others. It's fundamentally arbitrary and it's often related to graft. Um, And then you're uh, really undermining the sort of like moral and societal foundations of a a broader society, which should relate, you know, value accrued to value created for other people and should ideally allow people to sort of save and make long-term decisions about what they want the work they put into the world to net them, you know, across time and across space. And uh, I mean, like in in an argument that I used to find ludicrous, but I now found just correct. I mean, you enable the prolonging of war. You are centralizing decision-making power and control amongst a group of people who have not earned it. They haven't done anything for it. They haven't, you know, built and given things to other people so that those other people pay them with like, you know, the sweat of their brow. And, um, you know, we who are into Bitcoin are into Bitcoin generally because we believe that this is a huge problem that no one thinks about. There are a lot of reasons we don't think about it, but, um, that this is the only plausible solution to this problem for a variety of reasons. And that solving this problem will drastically improve our ability to cooperate at scale to create a better world. And um, on an individual investment level, you just think of the servitude thing. It's you can work for something that you have no ability to predict at all uh, a minute from now. You, first of all, you don't know how many units of this thing there are now. We, like nobody, nobody in the world has any idea of, not to mention of, of dollars. dollars yeah. yeah. Has any idea how many dollars there are in circulation? Uh, they can't even land on a definition of what a dollar is. Um, we know how many like base monetary units, let's say like treasuries, physical dollars, et cetera, exist. But on top of that, there's like all, all of this like complex house of cards and, and most of the money in circulation is just like credit, like operated into the world by banks. And, um, we have no idea how many dollars exist now. We have no idea how many dollars will exist a year from now. It fluctuates wildly the rate at which they're increasing is, uh, is rapidly on the increase if you look over the last decade or so. And you are exchanging your time on this planet for an asset that is highly unstable, uh, in terms of its basic issuance and can be inflated away, you know, like doubled at will and is, and it's worse in other countries. And those other countries are basically like, as, as Seyfriedian puts it, like their currencies are like the U S dollar plus like country risk. It's, it's worse for other people. We are like the most stable fiat, fiat currency in the world. Um, but that's not saying much. And what Bitcoin gives you absolute assurances, I can tell you to like a fractional degree within 10 years, two hours, you know, exactly how many Bitcoin there will be. Um, there's, there's nothing in the world that has that assurances. Gold doesn't, Ethereum certainly doesn't, U.S. dollar doesn't, um, and that's massive. And, and the price of Bitcoin fluctuates over time in relation to like a whole bunch of, uh, macroeconomic and social factors and uncertainties. But at the end of the day, as, as more and more people understand this value proposition among many others, the, the bet is that that predictability, the fact that you are trading your time for something constant, that you remains like a constant share, essentially, of the future economic pie. Um, and uh, you, you can trade it to whom you want without censorship, without limitation. Uh, these value propositions mean, we think, somewhat inexorably, that there's at least a very high likelihood that this will become the dominant, it is the best money. It is the thing that enables people to uh, best make calculations across time and space, to coordinate their activities as well as possible, to fairly and voluntarily interact with one another, and that those things are of high enough value, particularly in a world where those things are becoming uh, less reliable in fiat currencies. And, And I think the future is going to be much worse from that perspective that it's a much better thing to trade your time for than uh this thing that the value of which rests on the like full faith and credit of the united states which is really i think slowly and then rapidly undermining that full faith and credit um and it's 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 unsustainable it's it's a circular dependency on itself Mm. the u.s dollar system yeah
0: thanks for that description and one of the other most common misconceptions for people that are maybe our age or a little bit younger You're at Squatch, Um, and then I can maybe ask another question about people that are older with retirement funds. Um, the misconception that's very prominent and, uh, heavily circulating is, um, other cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. You said Ethereum, you can't verify that fractional supply. Um, curious as to how you can maybe as simply as you can, um, let or, you know, uh, Describe to to people what you're doing when you're taking that risk uh, by investing your the money that you're saving in dollars to Ethereum or Dogecoin. The most prevalent ones, aside from Bitcoin, seem to be like yeah Ethereum, um, Solana, mm-hmm. and why why is it why is it a risk and why is Bitcoin um, a, a more secure
1: uh, investment? Yeah, savings? I'm gonna do a worse job of this. But, uh, but basically there's a, um, there are a bunch of buzz phrases associated with blockchain. Yeah. Blockchain technology. So if you sprinkle a little blockchain technology (laughs) on something, it becomes uncontrollable, right? Like it is, it is inviolable. It is quote unquote decentralized. And, um, that means you can just trust it. Absolutely. And that, that ties into like the basic premise of Bitcoin is to some degree that if you decentralize you're, you're trying to gain inviolability by decentralizing control over the thing. There's no one person who has control over the issuance of Bitcoin. It's distributed among like many tens of thousands of actors around the globe. Um, in order to achieve that, Bitcoin had to make a whole bunch of sacrifices. Uh, it had to trade off against infinite complexity of computing capacity, right? Like Turing complete smart contracts on Bitcoin. It had to trade off against um, the number of transactions that can go through on its blockchain per unit of time, Uh, basically. (laughs) And uh, what has happened with most, and and another thing to note, which I think people don't realize, is like Bitcoin wasn't the first. This isn't like, you know, like I don't know that MySpace was the first, but it was very, Bitcoin is the culmination of like decades of evolution and attempts to create, Digital money it's like the first one that really worked. It got a balance right in which the incentives are all correct to enable like a, a small enough size of transaction and uh to have low bandwidth requirements and low storage requirements for running a node in which you can validate all the transactions along it. This is like reasonably technical mm-hmm. and um for instance, when you look at something like ethereum it's it's general heaviness as a protocol. The fact that it enables arbitrary uh, smart contracting capacity, and and as far as I know, it has no cap to block size other than what you're willing to pay for with the currency itself, means that the bandwidth and storage requirements for, and this is just one specific complaint, but just to to make the point generally, the bandwidth and storage requirements for running a full, quote unquote, archival Ethereum node are very significant and are growing, and are growing faster than the improvement in storage and, and bandwidth like in our computing systems. And so what this means is it is a centralizing tendency that is baked into the technology so that already and over time, you will have fewer and fewer people who are able to pay for the computers and the networking requirements to run a full archival Ethereum node, which is necessary because the order of transactions in a ledger determines ownership. And uh, when that happens, when you have like a very small number of Ethereum nodes run on, Basically, I think most of them are run by this company Infura, which also runs MetaMask. Most of them are hosted on AWS software. You end up in a scenario where this thing is quote unquote decentralized, but A, it is like more or less run by, it's like God King Vitalik Buterin that was dismissive and mean, but he's like the, the sort of the head of, of Ethereum. His, his word is Mm -hmm. so far not been pushed back on. He's, he's had, uh essentially unilateral ability to control the direction of this technology for now, like how, how many years, like eight, something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, if the government were to put a gun to his head or, or just like pressure him politely, uh, he could change the trajectory of the technology. If someone were to go to the CEO of Infura, I don't know who that is, and, and do the same, they could change the trajectory of the technology. If someone were to like politely ask Jeff Bezos, hey, can you shut off these servers? Mm you would end up with a scenario where the entirety, like almost the entirety of Ethereum, the archive of the ledger of transactions is shut down in an instant. And notably in Ethereum, and this gets more complicated, but because it's a proof of stake system, you don't have embedded within each block in the blockchain uh, proof of work gone into writing that block. And what that means is you can, with essentially no computing effort, generate a fake blockchain of sufficient length And at a time where, like, agreed-upon consensus around the history of the network is put into disarray or or uncertainty, uh, anyone could throw up an alternative and you fall back on social consensus. And social consensus is not consensus. That's, like, war. And there's tremendous pressure around it. And if someone were to shut down Infura or ask AWS to shut it down or get Vitalik on their side, it's done. I mean, like, the... The centralizing tendencies have it it is it is decentralized in name only. It is, I'm yeah. There's there's some reasonable pushback, but there are a huge number of centralizing for it. there have been trade-offs made with all of these technologies to enable centralized control or fancy whiz-bang activity that does not that makes it unstable as a monetary layer. So does that mean in the next like three years it's not a good bet? It does not mean that it could be a good bet. What it does mean is that. In a world which I think is the world we live in, in which like money, uh, sorry, governments want to retain control of, or banks want to retain control of money making because it is their most powerful tool, Uh, these things will be their enemies and will eventually pressure will be put upon them to be shut down. And in that world, these things clearly cannot withstand that pressure. Mm. Um, So for any long period of time, I think they are either a bad bet or a bet on a technology that does not fulfill any of the promises that at least you and I care about.
0: You could you could yeah. argue currently too that the um, SEC or IRS, I guess the SEC has been going after tons. Yeah. Just the other day, I think yesterday I saw a headline, SEC or the, I think it was the IRS, what, um, they're requesting a bunch of documents, documentation history from Kraken. Um, and yeah, a lot of uh, the SEC has been cracking down. <laughs> Uh, on, <laughs> on, um, on other cryptocurrency exchanges mm-hmm. and different, uh, cryptos being, um, defined as a security, whereas, uh, Bitcoin is still from the regulatory perspective in the ivory towers of, uh, these, um, ag- agencies or institutions, uh, it's still a commodity in their perspective, and they're also, I believe, the first spot ETF, Bitcoin spot ETF, was mm-hmm. approved. Uh, but, and it was mm. BlackRock that submitted it, which is mm. annoying, uh, that they just kind of dismissed all these different attempts and mm-hmm. the most, the wealthiest, I would argue, I think the, the wealthiest firm in the world gets a, an approval for something, which just, yeah, is annoying. But, um, so I would argue that just to comment on your last bit there, um, that those risks, risks of governments coming after these different mm-hmm. crypto technologies is already occurring. And, um, yeah.
1: I'd say um, that there's there's both, it's both of them. So some people have accused. I think Nick Carter brought this up on on Twitter. He's he's like a a Bitcoiner who's gotten very frustrated with the Bitcoin community, which is it, a reasonable guy. I like him. I don't know. Fuck. But he the, seems nice. Death to the Bitcoin Maxies. Yeah, I was gonna say fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he he's uh, he's pointed out that there's something like kind of. He he, I, I I haven't seen that much of it, but there's like some contingent that's sort of like gleeful about SEC action mm. against these other cryptocurrencies.
0: This and is I, an Operation Ch- Choke Point,
1: yeah. That he talks about yeah. Well, and and recent okay. stuff. Um, there's definitely been a, a pressure on banking institutions not to work with mm. uh, cryptocurrency so much. And I think I think what we're saying, or at least like the version of what we're saying that I like, is a, a there's like an actual distinction to be made between something that uh no one owns and something that a small group of people own and can print into being um control the issuance of and the latter is is like very easily falls into what US regulatory agencies would refer to as securities and you pass the howey test i don't know that much yeah. about the howey test yeah. and um the former is like akin to a commodity like you know lumber or gold mm-hmm. um and that's a that's at least regulatory a meaningful distinction as well as philosophically a pretty meaningful distinction, though, of course, it's a a spectrum. And Bitcoin's being the latter, Bitcoin's being essentially a commodity because no one controls its issuance uh, and there is no Bitcoin incorporated, uh, both means that it's less likely in the short-term future to... Well, it means that it's less likely in the short-term future to get this sort of attention from government. But I also think it's very important to state that when slash if it does... It is a much, much, much more robust technology mm-hmm. to try to limit, take down or co-opt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say it's a sure, it's a surefire thing. I mean, I think um, this guy, Eric Vascul wrote a really interesting book mm-hmm. that uh, we read recently with John, John Barrios Crypto. Uh, Crypto economics. Yep. And sort of his, his first principle of the book is essentially that there's, it is a open question and an insolvable open question. Like you can't prove it mathematically one way or another whether, um, a cryptocurrency can resist like a prolonged state attack, which, you know, a little, I think is likely to happen at some point. Um, but it's, it's certainly not shut in the case against Bitcoin. This is the most plausible solution to this fundamental problem of the co-option of money. And it has, it's the community, people who created it, everyone involved with it pretty much has made every decision to try to maximize the likelihood of it surviving. Mm. And that is, it's just not the case. I mean, Solana, you brought up is like they literally will like shut it down for a day. Yeah. You, you can't, yeah. You just can't. It's not, it's not centralized. It's a joke. It's a, it's a VC pump and dump scheme. And that's the other thing, just to throw literally north of 99% of cryptocurrencies, mm. just because there are thousands of them. Yeah. Are just scams. Yeah. And uh, when we're toxic, which I used to call myself, but I, I feel like that doesn't appeal to people. Um, yeah it, it's because a lot of a lot of people just get beamed by these scamps, mm-hmm. like it's not good
0: yeah um, yeah yeah, it, just one example that comes to mind is uh, it was like Elon is the great greatest or the goat uh, coin, yeah. and uh-huh. on Fox News, I think it was John Vallis who actually tweeted this. He tweeted the video, and it was these two guys that uh, were remarking on this new crypto coin that Elon is the goat, and which is such a ridiculous uh crypto token name but um yeah they were like yeah we have friends and their grandparents investing into this and it was just so it, when you know what's going on behind the scenes with all these different cryptocurrencies it it's just um it's heartbreaking to even hear that it's like grandparents their entire retirement uh savings is um going into uh, essentially a scam
1: yeah um when you think about um so one of the reasons there was this big like crypto boom or just like general, this like sort of retail investment is that as inflation occurs, and and I'm one of the people who believes that the CPI is generally sort of understating inflation, mm-hmm. uh, both for like really straightforward above board reasons, which is, you know, like yeah. food and housing are basically not calculated mm-hmm. in it. Um, but but also, I, I, whatever, um, inflation is occurring. Inflation always occurs. It's worse than usual. and And in a particularly inflationary environment, people seek somewhere they can store their wealth like mm-hmm. the, the fruit of their labor mm-hmm. in a way that will last some period of time. And uh, when lots of people are doing that for all for the same reason, because they don't have, um, you know, their money can't store their value. Their money is bleeding value over time. They seek investments and like each marginal investment is more speculative. Like basically in the same way that each in your life, you know, marginal utility, you first spend your dollars on the things most necessary for your survival. As you get more and more money, you spend it like less and less value, valueably. Mm. Um, in in the case of investment, I mean, people are spending. They've just got a bunch of money on their hand. They just got like you know the money from the COVID relief bill or whatever. They they don't know what to do with it. Um, they they spend it on increasingly speculative things, and that causes a bubble in these speculative things, and that makes these speculative things feel less speculative and people just pile the money into it and then there's nothing there it's like a a team of people or bots to like talk about the community or ecosystem on telegram and like a flashy website and some venture money to to prop that up and then it shoots down in value like 100 percent in an hour and uh, these people are just yeah monetarily ruined and uh it, it is a bummer that sort of the technology bitcoin that was like purpose built to try to provide a useful alternative to this sort of monetary system, then, you know, has all these copycats that are like, you know, you know, we we consider in some ways the monetary system, a confidence game or like a a pyramid scheme. Hmm. Um, the, the value of the U S dollar is dependent on, dependent on trust in the value of the U S dollar, really the U S treasury or the U.S.'s ability to pay back its debts, which increase exponentially. And, and, you know, we're heading towards some sort of problem. And so, you know, Bitcoiners feel like, oh man, this is a bit of a Ponzi scheme. We can create a technology or, or like usher in or support a technology that makes it impossible to create these sort of Ponzi schemes. And then there are a bunch of people who are like, oh shit, I can create a Ponzi scheme with this. <laughs> like, let's do it. Uh, and people are just ruined. And it's like, it's very, um, yeah, it's depressing.
0: Um, So just to uh, um. Yeah, just for a concluding question for you, um, just cause we're running low on time. Um, how does the, uh, construction, like the, the, the form of money as a technology, um, alter human behavior? So first, for instance, proof of stake versus proof of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think a lot mm-hmm. of people are so incentivized or, or they feel like it, it, it was very interesting uh to me that so many people were so hyped up about everything but bitcoin maybe that's because bitcoin's price was much higher than all these other cryptocurrencies and people see the lower price within all like within maybe ethereum solana and all that and so they think that they can make the best bottom for their buck and Mm -hmm. um they're in your article and i wish we could go longer but um you talk about uh illich uh, Mm -hmm and, uh, how he was, uh, a priest and he was constantly questioning the institutionalized, um, institutionalization of, uh, society, right. Mm -hmm. Our education system and whatnot. Um, could you provide just, um, maybe a brief explanation of how money, um, those various forms of money can alter human behavior?
1: Yeah, well, I I think uh, the stability of your money over time is uh, it leads to there's a there's a sort of Jordan Peterson point that he makes um, in in some of he, uh I I don't know how people feel about him, but he has this beautiful series of lectures on on the Bible, and he's talking about the Cain and Abel story and how it signifies or relates to the idea of saving saving value over time and the sort of like codification and narrative format of the value of, of giving a sacrifice, which is essentially what saving is for the future, um, and how this story is, is boiling that down into a narrative format that if you sacrifice for the future, you you should be rewarded or you will be rewarded by reality. And, and also in that story, like envy about that process and about, about the sort of arbitrariness and unfairness of reality but when you when you change the ability of people to do that when you make it harder for people to sacrifice for the future to save up to make long run decisions and when you essentially encourage them you know in, in hyperinflating economies uh you know they're, they're famous for people would get their paycheck and run right to the grocery store because like the goods um will retain their value more than the money you know in the really hyperinflating economies like in, in Weimar Germany you know, people are using their money as kindling Um, I've seen like a, you know, was it a trillion dollar, hundred billion dollar Zimbabwean dollars Mm. at a Zimbabwean friend in college who threw a party where that was like our monopoly money. It was like really depressing. Um, in, in that sort of context, you can't plan for the future. You are disincentivized to plan for the future. You're also incentivized to go into debt. And that, that has deranging effects on the individual and on the society at large. Mm. It makes us less forward looking. It makes us less, um, you know, invested in building because the, the costs the effort we put into building is not rewarded um, and and there certainly I mean if anyone's interested by this argument, check out um, the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard, probably the latter by sayfidina Moose gets into this um, at length but there, there's a there's a deep foundational relationship between money and like thinking about the future and creation of value and building of societies and the moral underpinnings of society and uh, when that when that underlying technology is not trustworthy or or valuable or is like arbitrary and unpredictable in its value over time it it has effects on people's behavior
0: Mm. yeah yeah well said um so being a bitcoiner i know you're maybe uh less apparent on the internet but i typically invite the guests to um state where they can find uh find you um and whether that's like Instagram or Twitter or your own website, I don't know if you have anything, but I really liked your sub stack. So I don't know if you want to recommend that, but it's up to you what you want to shout out or you, sure. can, go, or you can go anonymous because I know there's a lot of Bitcoins that value privacy. So
1: Yeah, it's too late. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Sasha. I'm on Instagram as Sasha F. Klein, which is K-L-E-I-N. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I, I just, I just um, lurked. Mm-hmm. I mostly lurk on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Substack, I mean, I haven't written very much. I wrote like one or two pieces. I took a bunch of really interesting courses on like philosophy and stuff when, when I was in Mexico and I wrote some things in relation to that. And that is uh, outofmyelement.substack.com. But it's it's really like, you know, two things. Yeah. I just gave up on it. Sometime before I die, I am hoping to publish a whole series that I outlined with some friends on like science and scientism and, and the manner in which we confuse the two and have converted like authorities around science into uh basically religious authorities mm. um but that is not there so don't yeah. go looking for it <laughs> yeah
0: well thanks man i really liked your substack uh writing and i wish we could dive into it with i think we got some people waiting to yeah. to use the studio and um but i definitely hope you continue to write on that substack it's up to you obviously but um yeah i appreciate you coming on man this was uh it's a pleasure
1: it was, thank you so much yeah so much fun yeah man. Really appreciate it better guys. Peace.